We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance. We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About the idea of a mafia. About semi-secret babies. About American cities in their vague geography. About dripping wet panties in weird places. About having a whole wing of a whole McMansion. About... Getting so big in your feels that you have to go to your personal cage match and beat the shit out of your friends. It's not about spaghetti, but it should be. (laughs) It's also not about red wine. It's not about cannoli. (laughs) (laughs) But it is about that first thing. Romance novels. And? And... Ourselves. Ourselves. (laughs) This week we are embarking on a discussion of Twisted Pride by Cora Riley. Great author name. Great author name. I in one of our earliest episodes we talked about how sexy the name Tess is. Mm -hmm. But I feel the name Cora is also very, very sexy. Cora has been high on my list of my own author names at various points in my life. I had a very big thing with Cora from Last of the Mohicans, the film with Daniel Day-Lewis, not the book by Fenimore Cooper. This was specifically requested by one of our listeners, ECL on Instagram. ECL always makes great wrecks. And they request, they asked if we had ever considered reading a dark mafia romance and i said what do you recommend twisted pride by cora riley which we're now going to discuss before we talk about the back of the book sorry to derail we you and i this is both of our first dark mafia romance it is yep showing up with nothing yeah and like uh, both of our first kind of dark romance in the like sense of what it means in the 21st century like new new publishing i guess sure whatever name they will one day have for this era <laughs> did you what were your assumptions about dark romance well i will i will go ahead and say that i'd read dark shifter romance before so like i was familiar with some of these beats because they reminded me of that 
Okay. Vixen's Faded Maid is not a dark shifter romance. No, I was... Uh, <laughs> Nal- Nalali Singh has a really dark one, and I read one many years ago. It's like... It's one of the various titles of Mated by the Alpha. It's pretty, pretty dark. Okay. All right. Interesting. But... It, it, it having read two, uh, I discovered that it wasn't my uh, particular brand, uh-huh. and so I haven't like revisited those feelings since 2017, since before this podcast started. Yeah, wow. So what was I showing up to with this? Uh, nothing, with the exception of uh, Al Pacino's Corleone, uh, Corleone. And uh, Robert Duvall's uh, portrayal of the consigliere in the very first Godfather film. That was your only assumption coming to this dark mafia romance. Yeah, I wanted a character like Al Pacino's Corleone. Sonny. Mm, That's not Sonny. Sonny was played by the guy who was in Elf. Michael. Michael. The younger brother who is supposed to be senator or president and then has to take over because Sonny's murdered and Fredo sucks. I expected there to be a Michael. Found a lot of Sonny. Found so much Sonny. <laughs> Which makes sense because that's really who he thought should be in charge the whole time. So even though you've read dark romance in the past, you really didn't have any expectations for this dark mafia romance besides that plus Michael Corleone. Yes. What were your expectations and or thoughts coming into this? My, most of my assumptions about mafia rom- dark mafia romance especially came from TikTok, of course. And it seemed like this natural progression of, of mommy porn, air quotes, wherein we've gone from the kind of rickety weirdness of Fifty Shades to this kind of rich tapestry of violence and sex that is Kindle Unlimited. Like, I I kind of knew it was, I, like, pictured a lot of, like, fancy suits. I also thought about that, like, Netflix series where they had lots of explicit sex. It's not Sex Life, which the second season just dropped this week. No, uh-uh. It was, um... That guy's dick is so big. It's probably fake. I mean... I'm pretty sure it's not fake, but I don't know. I don't know. They have prosthetics that they put over their actual penises. Wouldn't you? Would I? I don't know. Just like a ferocious looking bush. (laughs) Just like a thicket. I would want my bush to be ferocious. That is an adjective I would want to describe my bush were it to be on screen. Lush. Kate Winslet wears a merkin when she does historical nudity. See, I wouldn't wear a merkin for my armpits, so. Oh, it's going to drive me crazy. But that was like one of my other assumptions was it's going to be like, I'm going to kidnap you and keep you on my yacht until you fall in love with me. 365 days. That's it. Yeah. Yes. That's the one. That's what I thought it was going to be like. Those those were kind of my assumptions going in. So lots of explicit sex. And, like, kidnapping and maybe some, like, bondage. But, like, nothing, like, act like I was, like, oh, nothing actually dark. Like, this isn't going to be, like, a Cronenberg film or, so- or something like that. You know, like. Sure. Those were my assumptions. Do you want me to read the back of the book or do you want to read the back of the book? I would love it if you'd read the back of the book. Remo Falcone is beyond redemption. As Capo, <laughs> the 
Gamora, just hearing my very Midwestern nice white lady voice say the word capo <laughs> took me completely out of the book already. <laughs> Of the Kimura, he rules with a brutal hand over his territory, a territory the Chicago outfit has breached. Now Remo is out for retribution. A wedding is sacred. Stealing a bride, sacrilegious. Serafina is the niece of the boss of the outfit, and her hand has been promised in marriage for years. But kidnapped in her wedding dress on her way to church by Remo, Serafina quickly realizes that she can't hope for saving. Yet, even in the hands of the cruelest man she knows, she is determined to cling to her pride, and Remo soon understands that the woman at his mercy might not be as easy to break as he thought. A ruthless man on a quest to destroy the outfit by breaking someone they are supposed to protect. A woman intent on bringing a monster to his knees. Two families that will never be the same. Okay. What are your initial thoughts and feelings there? Well, my initial thought when I read the back of the book is like, I'm like, oh, yay, Romeo and Juliet, but darker and weirder, and maybe they won't die in the end. And I think that's what you got. Is it what I got? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. There's a lot that's kind of suggested by this back of the book. Like, this is one. So this book is on Kindle Unlimited, which has become its whole own ecosystem. Like, a pandemic happened, I blinked, and suddenly there's a jungle called Kindle Unlimited. Where authors fake their own deaths and come back to life. People, like, have their own lingua franca. Like, you have your... It's like algorithm. The It's really, like, not to be, like, a broken record. But in lieu of really descriptive covers and, like, a culture of, like, cover variants... I think algorithms have really put people in their corners and allowed those corners to get really deep, dark, and musty. And yeah, but one of the things that strikes me is just like, I think there's a lot of context here that is left out. For example, <laughs> the Serafina's age is left out of this. I think she's 19? 19. She cannot drink at the wedding that she is absconded from. Yeah, and she's been in an arranged marriage with, like, this other guy who's, like, close close to her age, older than her, but not exceedingly so. Yeah, he's, like, in his early 20s. They've been in a, like, arranged marriage since they were children. Right, this is a Sleeping Beauty Prince Philip situation. And he's going to inherit... The Indianapolis Indianapolis. (laughs) branch of the Chicago outfit, middle management position. And she and her uh, father and brother are of the Minneapolis part of the outfit. Her father is training her twin brother, Samuel, to be the underboss of the Minneapolis. Yeah, of the Minneapolis. And... And one of the things that I think is striking about this is that it sort of assumes things about, like, Serafina reflects on her life and she reflects on the fact that she was basically raised to be this wife, which I suppose we all are to an extent as, you know, AFABs, right? 
But mm-hmm. I think there's something about this that like is is more than that. And it actually reminds me of um I Irish traveler culture more than it reminds me of what we understand about the mafia. My limited understanding of the capo, etc. <laughs> but <laughs> It did kind of remind me of a TLC show. Didn't it? Yeah, with like big hair and like lots of like marble floor and like the entryways and the kitchens and like very, very dark penciled eyebrows. And very, very clean, always cleaning. Always cleaning. Always tanning. Yeah. I do have a note in here where it's like, did I accidentally fall into the New Jersey uh, Housewives early seasons before Teresa Goodis went to um, prison for Goodis. Goodis. <laughs> Get out of here with that mess. You better Google that pronunciation before you disrespect my gal Terry again. <laughs> Goodness, uh, I can't imagine this is that's what she is in my mind every time I see that name written I'm just like oh no it's Teresa Goodis again I would assume that if anyone knew Teresa <laughs> Teresa no that's not uh if anyone knew her it was because they had heard her name spoken first and to think that you know her exclusively through a written tradition of real housewives of new jersey it's true i do Talking about like the dark, musty corners of Kindle Unlimited, and then Isabeau's over here learning about Teresa Goodis on God knows what forums. <laughs> anyway, it also reminded me of a very specific um, wife swap episode from the early aughts. God, okay. It's pronounced Gadooki, by the way. Thank you. It's not pronounced Gadooki. Was... <laughs> Whatever it is, I don't care. They went to prison for fraud and they put makeup on their children at extremely young ages. Well, we'll see how you're feeling at age three. We'll see how Lenny shakes out. All we'll right? see how Lenny shakes out. Um, yeah, so just like she's 19, she's been raised to uh, Clorox wipe her floors by hand or make her maids do it. Um, she's been in the lap of luxury her whole life. Doesn't seem like a big reader, doesn't seem very like inquisitive about the world. Although I will say, one of the things that I thought was a really interesting authorial tick was that uh, Serafina would refer to our world as, like, the mafia world, but never referred to, like, the outside world, which was funny because whenever she referred to, in our world, it's not weird to be promised from the time that you're 10. In our world, it's, like, not weird that I've never kissed a boy or gone to parties without my brother possessively guarding my virginity, like some weird Doberman pincher. Um, horny and horny Doberman pincher. Yeah, dude. Like, I think we're gonna get into Samuel. Um, but like, the authorial tick of our in our world necessitates that there is another world that Seraphina is at least 
blatantly aware of, but is never commented on. <laughs> she talks about kind of early in the text when we're like chapter one, we're getting her perspective. She's excited to see Danilo, her fe- her affianced, briefly before her wedding. She's talking to her, her, no, to her brother, and he says, you have an impossible temper. Because he tries to get her to change clothes, and she, he's like, you're showing a lot of skin. And she's like, yeah, I have nice breasts, I have beautiful arms, I have nice legs too. And he's like, go up and change. And she refused. And she says, I have your temper. And he said, I'm a man. Women are supposed to be docile. I rolled my arms. Eyes. Eyes, yep. I rolled my eyes. Samuel crossed his arms and leaned against the wall beside the window. You always act like a well-behaved lady when others are around, but Danilo would get a nasty surprise once he realizes he didn't get a lady but a fury. A flicker of worry flooded me. Samuel was right. So she projects this family perception of like being very internalized, cold, methodical, logical. Um, but in fact, she she kind of bristles against... She she accepts her lot in life. She doesn't really question it, but she understands that she's her internality is at odds with it. Mm-hmm. I think from the beginning, mm-hmm. which makes her interesting. Mm-hmm. I was along for the ride of Serafina, nineteen year old human who potentially has a temper, and like I think what. What's hard for me about her age is also the thing that ameliorates most of her character for me, where it's like at 19, you really don't know yourself. So like it didn't like I wasn't super bothered by the fact that like she refers to our world and that there is no men like there there is there's no other side of the wall for her because I'm like, she's 19 you know, she's not asking a lot of big questions of herself or anyone else. Like, she has this feeling that, like, she has a temper that she can express with people that she trusts, like her family, but she'd never let that slip in public because she knows her role. And again, like, I think if she were a little bit older, those tensions would have been more at the forefront than they were, certainly at the beginning of the text. Um, Because at 19, you're, you're, you haven't even really tested any of those waters yet. Like, she doesn't, I don't even know what their school life is like. Like, it didn't seem like they were going to high school in Minneapolis. Well, she wasn't. Maybe she graduated. Right. She finished school. That was a thing that they said. I think she I think she is a little bit afraid. I think in that moment, because her brother points out, like, Danilo is going to be very disappointed when he finds out who you really are. And she gets, like, kind of afraid and anxious because she is worried how he's going to feel about who she is because she's only presented this one side of this this family image and uh of an ice princess um and she's worried he might be upset or disappointed by the fact that she's not right that she's got other attributes yeah, so I think there's already that like obviously this this slip this slippage will come up in <laughs> later on. Having this kind of encounter and this discussion with her brother in like the first three pages, I think the book really wants us to understand her as someone at odds with themselves or with mm-hmm. their current position in life. Mm-hmm. If not totally self-aware that they are at odds with it. Because I think that's a really good point. She makes a point all the time of our world and she's referring to like the mafia. 
Which is like setting your existence apart from everybody else's, which is, as you pointed out, a really weird worldview for any human being to have. Like, you'd be like, the world and then their world, right, (laughs) is how it would normally be formed. And we also don't, like, have any non-mafiosos in her orbit. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that was just something that I noted. And then uh, pretty much right off the bat, this 19-year-old who can't even drink at her own wedding is uh, stolen by one Remo, Remo, Remo. Falcone. Falcone. Remo, Remo. What do you want to say? I think it's supposed to be Remo, but like I read it as Remo because I thought he was a schemo. <laughs> a schemo? I just really, really, really had a hard time with him for a really, really long time. What's a schemo? Just like a sleaze ball. Like he's just like a skeezy. Like when Steve Buscemi plays like a gross guy, that's is a this schemo. like a, is this like a common term? No, not at all. It's a hundred percent me just rhyming. With, oh, you just, just it's me. It's me. Okay, this is, this a, is a made up word. Not only a made up word. By you, but a made-up word to refer exclusively to this character. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, like, sleazy, greasy. Just disgusting in every way. Yeah, he just fucking sucks so bad. And he's, like, hot, I guess. Before we get into him, I want to talk about she goes to Indianapolis to get married because her marriage is going to shore up the relationship between the Minneapolis and Indianapolis branches of the Chicago outfit, which apparently were, they were rickety. They were, they were not, they weren't tightly hewned like they should have. They weren't close enough. We got to tight, we got to tighten those bonds between Indy and Minnie. That's true. And so she was getting married in Indianapolis and she's getting ready at a beautiful hotel and getting picked up by a Bentley with a bunch of white flowers on the hood. And then they're going to like drive out to it was, wasn't it like a barn wedding? No, I thought it was like a big church. The church was outside city limits. I wanted the celebration to take place in a renovated barn in the countryside, surrounded by forest, not in the city. That's right. A barn wedding. No good Italian girl would ever get married like that. That's the thing that you, because you can't get married in the Catholic church in a barn. You, It's not maybe, allowed. You'll Maybe that's her reception, but I agree. I don't think any, like, Getting get having a reception in a barn. You and I have talked about it before. Why it's a problem? Yep. For us personally, but <laughs> it's it's surprising to think like someone in like a like what does a renovated barn mean to you? Like, does it even look like a barn anymore? <laughs> have you ever seen a barn city? New American Italian human being who has lived all their lives. Well. If you've lived all your life in Minneapolis and you've never been out of it, have you ever seen a barn? Why would you want a renovated one? Also, you're getting married in like a Catholic cathedral for sure. Yeah. That's a that's a hotel reception venue. That's that's what that yeah. has to be. That's what that has to be. But whatever. What do we know? Plot device. We got to we got to be in the forest so we can have a chase scene. Good for this author not assuming that Indianapolis proper would be full of trees. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's not really. I mean, you're not ever really that far from a tree wherever you are in Indianapolis. No. 
Also, famously bad drivers. Famously bad drivers. In Indianapolis. Um, So it's an interesting place. But that was like my first inkling that this author might not be a local gal. (laughs) Had never been to the Midwest. That's my first inkling. So she's on her way to a renovated barn slash cathedral wedding. And a car like zooms out and like some guy she knew from her childhood. Fabiano. Fabiano kidnaps her and shoves. she like runs through the woods. Oh, it's this whole thing. She gets blood on her wedding dress. She does a pretty good job of almost escaping, I thought. I thought so, too. That was very exciting. If if her she hadn't been wearing a ball gown, if she'd had a smarter silhouette, I think she almost would have gotten away much easier than because she gets tripped up in all the tool and like, you know, it hinders her movements. And as they're at, she gets knocked out, she briefly is in a hotel room and she's we meet. Remo the Schemo. Meet Remo the Schemo. And he's disgusting. He's like, and I don't mean that because he's obviously super physically attractive. He's like essentially a werewolf. He's got very dark hair, very dark eyes. I envisioned him uh, with a lot of body hair, but that's not in the that's text. That's not in this text, yeah. And he's huge, right? Like he's just like a mountain of a muscly man. And he's scary and he uses his size to be scary. The Kimura Capo had shed his shirt. There was fre- there was a fresh wound on his left side that had been stitched up, but there was still blood around it. My pulse stuttered in my veins at the sight of his muscles and scars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he's hairless so he can feature his his numer- his innumerable scars, which apparently like everyone who's a made man is like covered in scars, which is Cuz they're doing a lot of single combat with knives because this is essentially the like you know, big scene in West Side Story all the time. They're just, like, constantly skiving out their switchblades and just, like, going at each other. It's like, what the fuck is this? What it reminded me of are shifter romances. Totally, right? So, like, Remo stalks closer, every muscle in his upper body taut as if he were a predator about to pounce. I'm like, he a werewolf. He's literally going to turn into a predator. Yeah, uh, and he's going to have some kind of weird penis that you're going to have to deal with. Right. And you're maybe going to like it furrier than you thought. Yeah. I'm like, you're going to have to deal with that thought about yourself, Serafina. Earlier when you said, I have read Dirk Shifter romances, so I was familiar with the beats. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're they're in here. They're very close. I'm crossing my fingers together to indicate how close this dark mafia romance is with shifter romance or and like i haven't read particularly dark shifter romances see the history of this podcast where they're all like whimsical goofs i understand that like this kind of like scarred body thing it makes more sense for a human who's regularly turning into like a predatory animal than it does for someone who's involved in organized crime Yes. Because of DNA testing at crime scenes. You get you're getting scars, you're leaving you're leaving fluids. So much blood in this book. There is so much blood in this book. I was really unprepared for how much bleeding there'd be. So like we're going through this kidnapping phase and I'm like, "Oh, wow. He seems he seems like a bad guy." I was not prepared for how bad of a guy this book was willing to make Remo. Yes. May I list for you 
the bad things he does sure. besides drugging and kidnapping her. A 19-year-old who can't drink champagne at her own wedding. And is in her wedding dress, which makes it so salacious. Yes. No. <laughs> she is... So she mm. he takes her to his strip club, which I think is called something like the Chum Bucket. The Sugar Trap. The Sugar Trap. <laughs> the The sugar trap. He takes her to the strip club his family owns in Las Vegas, where they are the Dons. Mm-hmm. They are they run that town. Mm-hmm. He takes her to his basement that has been set up. It's like the it's like the warehouse from Hostel. Mm-hmm. It's got these all concrete cells with like drains on the floor and like dirty mattresses with like yellow and red stains all over them. Mm-hmm. Disgusting. And they're all set up with cameras, and he tells Fabiano that he's going to make a video, and Fabiano's like, please don't do that. Like, that's like, you can just use her virginity as leverage. You don't actually have to hurt her. Yeah. And he's like, well, maybe I want to. So he puts her in this cell, and you're like, wow, this cell is awful. And then he goes upstairs, and is just like hanging out in the bar that he owns, pondering his next move after scaring the shit out of her leaving her in the dark basement with the dirty mattress and the camera so like the very nature of this strip club is the first time i paled second (laughs) time was he was like looking around at the women who work for him and he was referring to them all as whores yep then he decides he's going to have sex with one Mm -hmm. and he has forcible oral sex with her And then he has forcible anal sex with her. Mm -hmm. And the whole time he's thinking about, like, what a bad mom she is. Mm -hmm. And then he says it to her. He says, aren't you worried that I do this to your daughter? Yeah. That's a weird thing to say while you're inside a woman. Mm -hmm. And then he he finishes capably. (laughs) And... Then his friend's like, hey, why do you keep having sex with her if you don't like her? He's like, that's why I have sex with her, which is, ugh. Yeah. That's one of the worst reasons to have sex. That is the worst reason to have sex with someone because you don't like them. Come on, guy. And then he sends his, like, weirdest, horniest lizard person goon down to take her a tray of food. And I was like, wow, he's also really bad at managing his hostage situation. Like, I'm I'm a lowly event planner, but I would know you don't send that guy to take the lunch tray. And sure enough, Serafina gets in a situation where the guy, she was like trying to shower in her little hostel room. And then the guy's like, show me your boobs and is like threatening her. And so then Remo's like, oh, I'm going to get him. And then he goes down there and Remo gets so angry. Because the guy is actively masturbating against the, she's in the shower. like Talk about a schemo. Yeah, he's like full on masturbating in the door. She's trying to shower and like calling him a pervert and like, leave me alone. He's like, show me your boobs or I'm going to hurt you. It's tattle. Yeah, the whole thing is awful. Like, I'm going to get Remo down here, and he's going to make you show me your boobs. And then, of course, Remo's there um, and doesn't like it because he owns his property. 
Serafina. So then he um just guts the guy. Just pulls out a knife and guts Slowly. the guy. And then we uh, go to Serafina's perspective as, like, blood fills the bottom of her shower. Mm-hmm. And she starts screaming and, like, mm-hmm. can't watch it and notices the smell. And mm-hmm. then she sees Remo strips down naked in mm-hmm. the super bloody, gu- gory cell and, like, carries Picks her, her up naked. to another hostile shower to, like, hold her and wash the wash blood her off. down. Then he's still mostly naked, blood on his legs, and he walks out to his Lamborghini. Mm-hmm. I have to assume it's three in the afternoon because it was so quiet in the strip club. And he like puts her in his Lamborghini. And then he, and then he, I mean, it's Vegas, so I'm sure it's busy all, but like, it's Vegas. He has a slow strip club at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and then he just drives her. Naked and bloody in his fancy car. She's naked. He just drives her to his mansion. Which his brothers don't like. Isabeau, at this moment, I said, Momo is unprepared. <laughs> Momo, Momo, I, needs, Momo needs a Vicodin. <laughs> Momo has a lot to process. I also had a very similar reaction where I was like, this is... This was not the car that I thought I was getting into. <laughs> I was like, dark hey. romance, sure, 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 sure. And I was like, <laughs> but like, there's so many moves there. Like that, like I could, I, like we could take the whole show to unpack this like very limited series of events. Chapter three. That's just chapter three. We switch perspective four times. I didn't really have words. There was so much blood. And, like, I knew the shifter beat there is, like, they're already faded mates because, like, he likes her so much more than he thought he was. Like, she's not just the tool of his revenge. There's, like, a burgeoning attraction. He likes her spirit, her chutzpah. Right. Um, But he's denying that about what's happening to him. So he has this awful scene of rape with an employee that he is mad at because she also has a substance abuse disorder and doesn't have chutzpah. And yeah, and yeah, that's his biggest problem with all other women. No other woman has been like, I I don't want to sleep with you. Please no, thank you. So that's gross. And then the shifter beat is like he acts violently to protect her, which then conversely makes her feel like while she can't trust him, she can at least trust him with her like bodily safety. And then the scene in the shower immediately made me think of the scene with Daniel Craig and... um. Ava Green in Casino Royale, where they mutually try to kill a person who's trying to kill James Bond's, uh, Daniel Craig's James Bond. And she's like fully clothed and he's fully clothed. And she's like, I can't get the blood out. And he's like, it's going to be okay. And there's like a tender scene of caregiving. Yeah. Which I think the naked shower is like gesturing at. 
But like, we're not there as audience members. I'm not there as a reader. I'm still actively horrified that he stabbed a man in the stomach knowing it would take him 15 more minutes to die. Well, and he like, doesn't he like talk shit to him the whole yeah, time while he's doing he's it too? Yeah, he's doing it. It's like, he knows where to stab you so it will be fast. He deliberately chose slow and talk shit at you while he does it. Yeah, there's not really like an uncontrolled. No. It's not like an eruption of violence. It's like a slow moving cascade uh, that is worse, frankly, than an eruption. Uh, Like I felt because this was cold, calculated and horrifying. Uh, And I had to sit with it as a reader for. And it lasted a long time. Lasted a long time. I wasn't prepared for that. I was not prepared for that when I was like, had this like little effervescent soap bubble. I'm fighting with my twin brother. Um, That's not what I, that is not what I was expecting based on chapter one. That was a hard, dark turn. That was a hard, dark turn. Having said that, Mm -hmm. a little bit of devil's advocate here. Okay. Listen, gang, hey, this is a podcast about romance novels. Mm. These two assholes end up in love. They do. How are we going to do it? And it works out for them. It does. Here's the thing, though. I I think my all-time favorite drama series was Hannibal. Okay. And Hannibal was an incredibly violently graphic, gory series. Mm -hmm. But the creator of the series said, I will never make rape part of any of my plots because I don't think you actually need that in a crime show or a drama and it's overdone and it's pointless. I can do, I can create emotional stakes with a lot of other stuff, right? Like he was basically like, it's lazy writing and I'm not going to participate in it. He's like, you know, having someone turned into an aquarium exhibit or a mushroom growth station is artistic Having a woman be raped is part of everyday life. I'm not going to contribute to rape culture in that way. I'm not going to normalize that, right? If we look back on the history of romance, there was for a long time, Mm -hmm. rape was like not just part of a secret dark corner of Kindle Unlimited. It was general publishing. Yeah, it was part of the formula. Yeah, and it was like what would otherwise be pretty light historical romances involved rape Mm -hmm. so is slow murder of another evil character is this that bad i will i will say it is more visceral and that's my deal but like to me as bad as this was it wasn't as bad as a pirate's love by joanna Lindsay, which is constant repeated sexual assault i think the slow murder of the bad guy was easier for me to stomach than the insane rape scene of the the employee right and his internality of it and the fact that those things are yoked together in space and time in this text it's like i don't know how we're going to rescue remo but that's actually not the book's project like He's irredeemable. It says it on the back of the book. And so, like, that was my bad for thinking that, like, the power of love is redemptive ever. That that was me. That was me. Do you feel like the power of love is redemptive in those, like, true bodice rippers? I say true bodice rippers because I think the term gets used a lot more loosely. But 
when we say bodice rippers, we mean historical romance, mainstream historical romances that used rape as a sex scene or central plot device. Do I think that love was functioning as redemptive? In a lot of those, I do. Like thinking explicitly like uh, the flesh and the devil um, love is redemptive in that. And like part of its redeeming power is the function that it does where it's like, I think all women are stupid, but now because I love you, I, I, I think you have agency and want you to feel freedom and whatever, but the rubber band also gets expanded to like three other women. So flesh and the devil is interesting because there's a lot of the same kind of moves, right? Yeah. Our hero doesn't rape his employee. He rapes our main character, our female mm-hmm. main character. And then he goes on to murder her captor, essentially, mm-hmm. in a really Baroque, slow way. He drowns him in a barrel. A wine vat, yeah. I think there's a lot of synchronicity here. Yes. As much as I want to talk about Flesh and the Devil right now, I need to resist it. Because Flesh and the Devil was always kind of an outlier, I want to talk more about the, like, run-of-the-mill, the the Joanna Lindsay. The Kathleen Woodowisses. Yeah, I think the the redemptive power of love is, like, a key aspect of how both the sex changes from coercive rape scene to consenting adults having sex with each other. Well, Well, not even coercive. Sometimes they were just, like, knocker in the head raper sure scenes. yeah that's a pirate's love but i'm thinking specifically of like the flame in the flower flame in the flower she goes onto the boat and he assumes she's a sex worker and right. so he forces sex on her then which is not so different from what remo does because i don't think the book i think flame in the flower frames that as like oh it's not really rape because of what she does for a living and i think remo thinks I think the this book actually has that perspective about what Remo is doing with his employee. So the thing that the flame on the flower does with that particular scene is like it's such a good encapsulation of what the bodice rippers from like 78 to 85 were doing. Like you have to thread the needle, right? Where it's like you have to have a rape scene because you're female protagonist can't want it right she can't be sexually awakened yet because if she is then she's like not. she can't be voluntarily sexually awakened right because then she's not the right kind of girl right so then with the flame and the flower he makes an assum- a wrong assumption about her which sort of exculpates him from like the moral degradation of rape and also inculcates her as like a bad actor because she doesn't speak up right and so then like there's some victim blaming there right and like yeah we move past it right and we're able to be like he wouldn't have done that if he had known right and so like that's like that's a really interesting contextualization of how uh rape scenes and bodice rippers had to function where it's like it has to be bad but it can't be so bad that your hero can't be redeemed The fact that this series of scenes functions in a similar way for both of us, right? That we were both immediately reminded of the bodice rippers of the late 70s, early 80s, and that we're having this conversation says to me that this this book is pinging those notes in a particular way. And it's just like not necessarily pinging them on our heroine, which is 
interesting. Yeah. But, like, he's so irredeemable at this point. Like, he's just, like, the the hole is so deep, right? What I think I'm trying to get at, because I'm like, why is this different? Because it feels like less stuff, like, what happens in The Flame and the Flower? And also what happens in Shanna, which is just he, like, shoves her head down in the carriage and rapes her. That's there's no like misunderstanding. It just is what it is. And it was a wildly popular book. I think it's almost less morally gray what's happening in this text than what's happening in Flame and the Flower. And therefore it feels less icky to me. <laughs> like it's like he's an asshole. He's irredeemable. We don't need to make excuses for who he is as a villain. Although he can have a backstory. He's not a villain. He's a hero. Who he is. I think he's both. I think he's meant to be both. Mm-hmm. I think the book is not afraid of tying something as in-your-face saturn as being a romance novel hero and is not afraid to like heighten the stakes or meet those stakes with being like, and he's a com- this is how bad he is. And it's not trying to, like, I think perhaps the book has a blind spot when it comes to what happened with that worker Mm -hmm. at his bar, because I get the sense that we're supposed to have some kind of context from a previous novel, and I also, in general, don't think the text understands it for what it is, which is sexual assault. What's interesting is that, in his mind, he raped his employee as much as the hero from the flame and the flower raped the main character and like i think they are at the same level of understanding yes and i think the text is also at the same level of understanding like can't really hold him accountable as a rapist for that no i think the text wants us to hold him accountable for his pretty disgusting which text this text wants to hold Remo Remo responsible for his internality, like that comment about, aren't you afraid I do this to your daughter? This book is not afraid of, of making him disgusting. And does that feel more or less bad to you than what the classic bodice ripper does with heroes? Because I was surprised that it actually felt less bad to me. It felt pretty bad. And, like, it, the reason why it felt so bad to me is... But did, did it feel more or less? Like, if you compared it to the feeling of reading those early chapters of Shanna or reading that first sex scene in The Flame and the Flower. They feel on par. And I would say, like, the bodice rippers, the old bodice rippers feel manipulative. This feels naked, which is maybe what you're getting at. Like, there's a transparency thing here that is, like, potentially better. Um, my big problem is that, like, they end up together. And I, and, I, and I knew that in that moment. So, like, knowing that they end up together. And I'm not, like, there's no even veneer of manipulation. Um, like, yeah, I, I just, I was like, how the fuck are we going to do this? And, like, do I even want this for Serafina? Definitely not. But, you know, to your point, did I want that? I didn't want that for Shanna or any of the other main characters, certainly not in any of the Johanna Lindsay novels. I feel less manipulated, but also on the back end, more manipulated. Maybe that's what it is. Like, I feel more manipulated at the front end of a bodice ripper 
and less manipulated at the back end. And I feel very not manipulated here at the very beginning of this novel. And I feel very manipulated by the end. I felt equally non-manipulated throughout. (laughs) I think it's important to contextualize that Serafina doesn't know about his sex life prior to her, including this one scene. I also think it's worth noting that when he says the egregious line while he's having uh, sex with his employee, think he's getting mad at his employee for like how little fight she's putting up, how little dignity she has. These are all unfair things to think. But I don't think the text thinks that what he says is unfair. I think that it provides us... It wants us to dislike this woman. Yeah, it wants us to dislike this woman and think that what he's doing is reasonable and what he's saying is reasonable and fair, if a little bold. Like, it feels a little too on his side. Yeah, this book is, like, super anti... Like, it's not into harm reduction when it comes to drugs. Right, it's not into harm reduction when it comes to anything. (laughs) That's true. It's not that the book is, like, uns... It's not like the book is trying to fool itself. No. And I think that's what I was like, that feels better. Like, that feels better than what happens in the beginning of Shanna. And it's also like, I think that this sex scene that's so violent is not supposed to be titillating. I think there are things that happen in the sex scenes in Flame and the Flower and Shanna, certainly in A Pirate's Love, certainly in The Sheik. Mm-hmm. That are supposed to indicate to us that something very erotic is happening. Mm-hmm. And that's not present in this sex scene. That's true. And I think that was like as horrifying as this whole first at- introduction of Remo the Schema was to me. And as much as I had to like stop and I, and I genuinely was like, I don't know if I can do this. Same. Because it was just so over the top. And then... I thought about it and I was like, you know what? I think this is me being, first of all, a person who doesn't have time to read another book. (laughs) Second of all, a person who is like, if I can get through Flesh and the Devil and treat it with dignity and respect, then why am I having this hang up about this text, which seems to be as honest with itself as Flesh and the Devil and more honest than Shanna or Flame and the Flower. It's certainly an inheritor. I will give it that. It's definitely, it's sitting on the shoulders, right, mm-hmm. of somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was like, you know, and I read, I personally read violent stuff. And now that I know you watch Castlevania, I'm going to hold you accountable. You watch Castlevania. Animation is different. Like, that separation is actually quite important, I think, for my enjoyment of a thing. And, like, this felt very visceral to me in so many ways. And that's, it's like, there's so much blood. Like, there's blood all over her dress. There's blood in the drains. There's blood coming out of everyone. There's blood on his knuckles. There's, like, everyone's just, like, constantly internally bleeding because they're just, like, punching the shit out of each other it's like i longed for west side stories sweet little switchblades that killed little riff like it's just like well speaking of west side story speaking of remo 
when I got back into this book mm-hmm. and I started, you know, and she's like begging for her brother's life yeah. and there's all these manipulations going on through letter writing and scheming and then like the end surprises you. I, I feel like this is very Shakespearean and it made me reflect on the fact that like we've been getting pleasure f- entertainment wise from the same things for centuries Like, Shakespearean dramas were very gory. Very gory. Like, what's interesting about this, like, visceral experience is that it's in your own mind. Like, you can edit it. It's in a book. If you didn't like it, you could skip forward, right? I couldn't skip forward. I sat there and I read each and every line. Like, I couldn't tear my eyes away. I couldn't close my... I can't close my eyes in horror films either. I think it's probably worse whatever happens if I... No, I was I was definitely at at points I was reading between my fingers. Like I watch horror films like genuinely. That's salacious, right? Watching things between your fingers. Like there's something titillating in that violence as well. And it seems like this this book is not afraid to like even is even good at like identifying what's titillating about the suggestion of violence. I'm trying to suss out if I think of it as if it feels like titillation or it feels like abject for me personally. Okay. Let's start with, let's start with a, a smaller, cause like personally that, that feels like heavier, heavier load. What do you think the text understands it as? What do you think the goal is of the scene? Of this one or like other scenes of violence? Because I I think that's actually a really good question that this book is actually bringing up for me now. Because like there are, I agree, some scenes where like violence is utilized differently in different scenes. So I would say it's titillation all the way through even at the end with like Adamo yeah even at the end with Adamo yeah I think it's titillation all the way through if we're saying titillation versus abject which you know I love a dual polarity so I think we should fully lean into that what what do you think let's start with this first scene where he's gutting his soldier air quotes Titillation or abject? What do you think the goal of the text is? Titillation. And we can say that because structurally, like, even if I was, like, unsure, I would be like, I'm reading a romance novel. I'm reading a book that wants me to finish it. We should explain what the abject is. Abject is a thing that you, like, viscerally react to and it's something that you can't necessarily control and so like the way that it was explained to me that has always stuck with me is like an abject that you might have is like a milk that's been left out overnight and it grows that film and like you hate it milk skin milk skin and you don't want to like you hate everything about it but you can't help but touch it and as soon as you touch it you know exactly how gross like it's so gross but like you can't look away from your own abject even if it is the thing that like horrifies you at a visceral level, both physically and emotionally. So Chris Jeva wrote about milk skin. But like abject, I think you're trying to say something that's like completely repellent that it can't like pull you through. But like when we talk about like horror film studies, like the abject is actually considered something that pulls you through, right? Like horror fans will show up for the abject, want the abject. Right, like you can't turn away. Yeah. Even as it repels. Yeah. And so by that measure, then I would say the first act of violence is abject. 
Mm-hmm. The last act of violence from Adamo forward is abject, and then everything in the middle is titillation. But I think there's nothing that happens in this book that isn't supposed to pull you through the book. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. Right, that isn't supposed to, like, delight, delight? You know, isn't supposed to, like... Take you on a sensory journey. Take you on a sparkle, put sparkles in your brain. Yeah, it's firing on cylinders. So did you find... Okay, this is jumping ahead. I'm going to hold... We haven't even left the McMansion. Like, we haven't even gotten to the mind games or, like, like, like the weird BDSM cutting of the forearms. Like, Let's there's a play. lot here, y'all. Yeah, bloodletting, which is very faded mates. So the reason why I bring up, like, where... So this is, like, essentially my weirdest part, right? Where it's, okay. like, there's all this stuff about the mafia. And it's, like, if it's okay with you, I'd like to talk about this. Because I think it's related I think so, to the yeah, object. I think so. Okay. So age, right? Like, we've talked about the fact that Serafina is only 19. Ramo is at least in his 30s. He might be mid-30s. He's much older than she is. Solidly bodice ripper from the, you know... That's like, that's not a weird age difference for me. What gets weird. <laughs> I've reconciled is, that years ago. Next. <laughs> like, it's, I understand what it is. Every, like, if I met every it, 19 if, year old is 31 to me now, and she'll be 32 next year. <laughs> obviously, that's how this works. Um, and 19 is the only age a woman ever can be because, like, that's her peak of freshness. Yeah, we are 19 and then we are men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. I'm glad that you were following. <laughs> um, so she's 19, but her twin brother, who is only three years older than her. What? Her twin brother, who's only three years older than her? Three minutes older. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> three like... minutes older. Um, was a made man five years ago, which means that he murdered someone when he was 14. Yeah. Like, I. I so the thing about, like, age... Mm-hmm. I think most 15-year-olds feel radically different from most 19-year-olds. But 19-year-olds that are three minutes apart. I guess, like, he's been murdering people for five years and she's been living cosseted. I just think that, like, the way that age functions here, it, like, it it seems untethered from itself. And I think one of the things that this text relies on is like in our world as like a shorthand for like you know this is different from what you reader are accustomed to and like I think that works in some ways untethered like her 19 is not Samuel's 19 and Adamo's 15 is not Samuel's 15 is like like none of the ages and then like how old is Remo or Nico or Saviano or <laughs> Fabiano <laughs> like like how are these working if they're so important which they seem to be because we keep getting everyone's ages and so then I'm just like I don't understand I felt about everyone's ages in the same way like that I was like, Las Vegas is much further away from Kansas City than that like I think that's intentional though this book is an incredibly intentional. I'm not saying that this isn't intentional. It's just the weirdest part for me. Is it how the difference in age is like functioning in the novel? Is it like just that it there there is a difference between how people are when they're 15 and versus 19? I mean, like comparing 19 year olds to 19 year olds. 
it feels like some people are on like age boosters and then others are not. And so like also the way in which people mature in this text feels very strange to me. And not that it isn't intentional, like that's not what I'm getting at. It's just like, I guess it's like the ways in which people are dealing with trauma and like having their ages front and center for me was one of the weirdest parts. And I think part of what was so weird for me about it is like Samuel, and it, I think it, it's for, it's particular for me with these three, Adamo, Serafina, and Samuel, partly because of the way innocence is functioning and partly because of the way uh, the text like occludes the way that innocence is working. Like Samuel reads mostly innocent for most of the text and then suddenly he's not, but he always reads as more mature than Serafina until the end. And Adamo reads as really immature, even though he's part of this world and much more part of this world than Serafina was at the beginning of the text. So his immaturity isn't doesn't read clearly to me the way that Serafina's did, because he was part of this, like he'd been around when people were being made men, like he had already done some stuff with the violence of the gang. And like, so for him to function and as innocently as he did felt strange to me in what was happening with Serafina. And then like her insistence that he is a boy and a child at the end also felt very strange because then this was a child that we had seen forcibly, maybe even coercively murder a person in a parking garage. So, okay. So I see. So it's like Adamo is supposed to be understood as this innocent character, but he doesn't actually have the same kind of like innocent credentials as Serafina and there's also not like some naivete like the book doesn't think Serafina's being naive and treating him as a child and that's and like since we're supposed to understand that her brother was like more mature than her because of what happened to him when he was 15 therefore we should be perceiving via Serafina via uh Remo who also understands him as this like babe in the woods we should actually okay I see what you're saying the presentation of Adamo is like incongruous with how we're supposed to understand human development in the mafia universe yes I got it yeah that makes sense I think you know it made sense to me that like Serafina was more naive than her brother. That makes sense to me. It also makes sense to me that a 15-year-old who is, like, murdered people would have, like, a different overall vibe. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But I see what you're saying about how, like, because of the character, the characters that were forced to, like, live this life, live this novel through because of their perceptions, that creates this static... Yeah, there's not a self for X. And I think like that was one of the ways in which I understood the beats like that. Yeah, that it just created a tension that like I, I just felt like I just it's like when you've got a hangnail. It's like, 
What the fuck is happening? Adamo's torture at the hands of these fellow adults is supposed to feel really, really bad because he himself isn't this, like, isn't the same as them. And yet, through all the, like, world rules and evidence that the book gives us, even if not perspective, like, he should not be an innocent. Like, he should be able to, like, handle getting his shoulder dislocated, which seems to be, like, a regular thing. For people in this lifestyle. Never had my shoulder dislocated at a drag brunch. What are we doing to eradicate the Camorra family in Las Vegas? Good point. Good point. Listen, some of this stuff happens in Kansas City, right on Missouri's doorstep. It's true. The book thinks that like all this hot action would happen in Kansas City, Kansas. And I understand the confusion because the word Kansas is right there. But it in Kansas is a state. But in fact, however, Kansas City Mo. Kansas City Casey Mo. So that's like one of the ways in which the objectification and um possession of female virginity gets real fucked up in this book for me in ways that are like I at first I thought the text was blowing it up on purpose to be like, look at how silly purity culture is. And then the book seemed to be taking it pretty seriously. And so then Mm. I didn't know what to do with it. Okay. And then there's the whole thing about, we know that Samuel, who doesn't have a name that ends in O, which seems like a total overlook. (laughs) Serafino. Serafino. Exactly. Serafina and Serafino. Um, (laughs) Was a maid man at 14. And then we have Remo's youngest sibling, Adamo, who is just about to become a maid man at the cusp here between 14 and 15. And he's only four years younger than Serafina. And she constantly refers to him as a boy. He's a boy. He shouldn't be doing this violence. He doesn't know any better. And she gets really protective of him. And he's equally protective of her. And it's like one of the first moments of tenderness in the mansion that she has. Every time you say in the mansion, I hear you say it in a, like, Love Island voice. In the mansion. (laughs) I mean, it kind of feels like that. I was definitely getting, like, Big Brother vibes. It feels very reality show mansion on a lot of levels. Yeah, okay, good. I'm glad that you're picking up on that. Um, <laughs> I actually watch reality television. I don't just read it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't you don't have it mediated to you through print. Um and so like I then I didn't know what to do with age because on the one hand, Serafina feels so much younger than her twin brother. And on the other hand, she feels wildly older than Adamo. And like that becomes really clear in one of in the last act when Adamo is taken as retribution for the kidnapping of Serafina. And like her brother, her dad, and her uncle are just wailing on this 15-year-old. And they like pop out his arm and they like break it's 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 awful. It's the that scene in particular didn't didn't feel titillating and I didn't think I was supposed to understand it as titillating. I think I was supposed to understand it as like violence. Like and and it was the first time Well the the bad guys are doing it. But they were the good guys for a lot of the book, 
right? They're the people that she's trying to get back to that's like, and suddenly, you know, she always knew that her brother could be a monster, but she'd never seen it before. Um, ditto with her dad. But we kind of know they're supposed to be the bad guys because we know that Remo is supposed to be be the good the guy. good guy. But like he's done nothing up until this point to be a good guy. They're his villains. I think, you know, like that's kind of the power of genre. It does so much work for you. If you're like, if you're talking to people like us who read romance all the time, like I don't know. Maybe this book is is legible in that way to other people, but maybe it's not legible in that way to people outside of the genre. Maybe. I mean, I had a really hard time... Because this book plays her family really soft until the end, right? Like, we're only... And even in the way that Remo is visiting violence to her family through her by, like, these threatening videos and, like, all that stuff, all we see is, like, their emotional pain, right? Because they love her and, like, should have protected her and, like, feel guilty about, like, what she's going through. But, like, all of that is coded as, like... Those are good guy traits. But they don't actually ever do anything about it. And they try. Like Sam shows up by himself. He's the only one who tries. Her uncle doesn't sanction anything besides kidnapping Mm -hmm. a 14-year-old. Right. Who's drag racing for 100 miles in Kansas City. Yeah. Like it's her her uncle. He like regrets it later. And she always thinks to herself like, you're never going to get what you want. I'm just a woman. Mm -hmm. They don't care that much about me. Which I think is like setting up her family as villains. Because we're like, why don't you guys just go in and save her? They don't. And every time something bad happens to her, she refl- she's like, why don't you just kill me? Like, they're not going to do anything, right? They're not actually going to negotiate with you. Until they take her virginity. And then at that point, I think it is a critique of purity culture. Because then her family is like, oh God, just give her back. <laughs> you know she's ruined you know like you've done the worst thing you could do to her like I think that's I think that I think that the book is being critical of that and I think the book is setting her family up as villains they stop kind of being like soft likable people from the moment she like arrives in Vegas and they start being like hard-nosed negotiators mm-hmm. and then when she goes back it's like she can't fold back in and like we can't either she's pregnant by the time she gets back and they like really want her to get an abortion and then they don't like her babies except for her little sister who's naive to everything because she's 12 which means that she'll be 19 in a day (laughs) i think the novel is doing some pretty sophisticated actually critique over like what it means to be tolerant and accepting I think it is, in the last act especially, I think it gets really sophisticated in that way. Um, Her family, like, they are the bad guys. Established and legibly bad guys. Remo is also a bad guy. That's, like, the thing that's hard for me about this text, where it's, like, he's such a bad guy guy even the way he talks about her virginity is gross and like he's always talking about like ripping her innocence from her and like taking what was supposed to be someone else's like his objectification of her is so intense and like her own objectification of herself while much more understandable to me is also deeply intense and then he makes this like wild left turn 
after they have sex and she's like, well, you know, you have the only thing that was valuable about me and like, I'm just going to go home like ruined. And he's like, if anybody makes you feel that way, that's on them. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? You've been saying this. No, I think like his whole thing is like, I'm going to use virginity against them because they're the only ones who give a shit. And I personally, Remo, have never had sex with a virgin before. I don't know what I'm doing, but, like, I think it's overrated. But, like, he's saying this stuff to her. I'm going to rip your innocence. I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. Like, Yeah, I think he's, like, telling her, like, listen to how dumb this sounds. That is not what he's doing. I think he thinks it's dumb. And I think he's trying to, like, play up how dumb it is. And, yeah, I think he's trying to intimidate her. She's his hostage. Yeah, he's trying to scare the shit out of her. Actually, Remo has some pretty progressive worldviews on virginity. (laughs) He's merely reflecting back to her what her own values indicate. He's super stoked, and he uses the term breach, which you and I have talked about in the past that we hate. And he's super stoked to be the only one to fuck her, which, not great. And he also is, like, super into marking her. Uh, which isn't necessarily about purity culture so much as just, like, ownership of object. He he says, you breached my territory. He uses the word take. Whatever it was when he has sex with her the first time, I was like, <laughs> I think he's got a lot of bad stuff going on. I think he's a murderer. I think he's a misogynist. But um, actually, I think... <laughs> He has a lot of bad ideas. His opinions on purity culture aren't one of them. I don't know. I think it's I think it's pretty cool how he uses it against his enemy. I don't know, like when he's using it against her, and he's not like letting her in on the joke. She she willingly loses her virginity to him. She does after he gives her some rad cunnilingus in the garden. In so, many many times. When he loses his cunnilingus virginity mm-hmm. to her. Yeah. Uh, my weirdest part is uh, her relationship with her twin brother. <laughs> Samuel. I get the like thing about how like Samuel wants to protect her and save her life when she's held hostage. But Samuel seems way more invested in her virginity than Remo is. Um, I think Remo points it out on a regular basis. He's like, you should put on a negligee before we do this video for your brother to make him feel weirder about this. They also like wrestle on her bed in like the first 10 pages. Samuel also smells her hair more than anyone else smells her hair. He helps her raise her twins, Mm -hmm. which she ends up having, but he hates her boy twin because it reminds him of the man she had sex with. And she tells him, she's like, it's not rape. And he's like, well, you know, there's... This is what he says, because I highlighted that. He says, because this was a moment where I was like, because I, I hear what you're throwing down about Samuel. And I'm I'm inclined to agree with you. Uh, but It's weird vibes. Weird vibes. But this is what he says when she's like, they didn't know I wasn't the victim, not in the sense they all thought. And I had been shielded from attention so far. I hadn't left the house, hadn't attended any social gatherings. More than three months since Remo had kidnapped me, more than four weeks since he'd set my body free, body, not soul. Sometimes they managed to forget him for minutes, only to be reminded with a crushing force. It got better. Maybe Sam was right. Maybe Remo's brainwashing was ceasing. Maybe I could be free one day. Yeah, so he says, like... You've been brainwashed. It's okay that you don't think that maybe with time you will come to understand that what happened to you was violent rape. 
Chelsea Books, who has appeared on the show, once uh, proposed on their TikTok channel that the idea of reconciling sexual assault and bodice rippers is kind of missing the point. Like what it's actually doing is reconciling being a good or bad victim. And so when I read that, I was very arrested, (laughs) if that's true, how it's clear that these dark romances are functioning a lot in the same way and thinking about victimhood and also thinking about like victimhood and violence in this like more direct fashion. Like Mm -hmm. my weirdest part doesn't go much deeper than I think she's got a weird relationship with her brother and it should stop. (laughs) And it does stop. I'm glad she has her close friend, but like it's she doesn't. Come on now. What, one of the things that surprised me about this book is how it, it, it does seem to be dealing with the exact same themes mm-hmm. in this very like titillating way, but also in a far more direct way and something that feels more cathartic, at least for me, because I'm used to living in a world that talks about these things in a more direct fashion. But it seems like it's still something, uh, of course, it's something that still has a lot of utility. This book is bonkers. What is your sexiest part? What is my sexiest part? When they come, when she comes back and he's healing and he's been told by his like weirdo, nerdy, sciencey brother, Nico, not to get like too physical. Um, and she's like trying to hold him to Nico's bedside advice. And he's just like, goes to town fingering the shit out of her <laughs> like it's just like okay it was very sexy i like that in general so she decides that she's gonna go back with him and she stages this elaborate rescue he's decided she's she's not coming back and he's very in love with her and so his whole life is over so he trades himself for his brother. Who's been captured. On a car race to Kansas City. Pretty easy to capture someone. They'd have to make a lot of stops along the way. <laughs> and he trades himself in. She stages this elaborate rescue because she feels that like her family will never accept her children. His family will. And when she goes back to live with him, I love that he's we know from his perspective that he's like passionately in love with her but he very intentionally continues to give her space Mm -hmm. and only kind of takes what she gives him Mm -hmm. which i think is also true in their preliminary courtship like he has this ultimate goal of like getting bloody bed sheets to send back to her family But he doesn't rush the process. Mm -hmm. Like, he seems to really... He's bewitched by her from the moment she's, like, resistant to his kidnapping attempts, which says a lot about past (laughs) precedent. Um, But he's, like, enchanted by her. They normally... Okay, in Vegas, they're, like, infamous for giving women a choice between, like, getting physically tortured or, or just being raped, I guess. And, she and they says, get the choice, so then it's, you know, not that bad, right? Because, like, you you pick your poison. But they always choose rape, and she chooses physical torture. So he holds a knife, and she says that she wants to be cut on her forearm, or she sees that he has a lot of scars from past childhood trauma, which we he does get into eventually. 
But she's very stalwart through it. And then he like gives her tender ministrations afterward. Like he's so struck by her intensity that he like can't do anymore. And, and like for the first time, he like doesn't get pleasure from violence hurting someone which is like very not like other girls but the sex part of the book doesn't feel forced or rushed like it doesn't feel he doesn't deceive her with who he is Mm -mm. he's not trying on purpose to be courty with her Mm -mm. like he takes her on runs because she likes to run and he likes to run and and he can catch her if when she tries to escape, but she does a great job of fucking him up along the way, you know? Yeah. They really get to know each other. They really get to know each other in a way that's, like, acceptable to the two of them. And also, like, you know, text-specific. Like, this text is very intentional. It, it, like, it really uses all of its plot devices to, I think, great effect. Because in the second half of the novel, she's, like, voluntarily there, I still like that... Remo himself does not force anything like he's very mm-hmm. interested in like getting to know his kids overseeing the setup of the nursery he is once again kind of doing that I don't feel the need to rush anything but in this like way more tender way and so I am just I am just providing further supporting context for your sexiest <laughs> where she eventually just sits, allows things to happen and I would say my sexiest part, I love the part where she tries to escape him when they go for a run. It's a good part. And then he catches her and he takes her back to the car and just gives her water. And she's kind of shocked by the fact that he's not like restraining her more. Um, And they have like a couple like close breaths on faces. But the first sex scene, which is actually the first cunnilingus scene It changes perspective quite a bit, but I found that super beneficial. We slip from Serafina's perspective into Remo's perspective, and Remo is having to grandstand because he doesn't know a lot about cunnilingus, but he's made up his mind that this is what he's going to do, and he's going to do his best job ever, and he feels, like, very giddy about it almost. It's also weird because that scene starts with, like, they're in the garden, and, like, they hear Nico and Nico's wife. Yeah, that it is a weird Kiara. Part. Yeah, the sibling stuff. The sibling stuff. And and like it's like a woman moaning and then like Serafina stops and then like right behind her, Mountain Man Remo is like, do you know what that is? It's the sound of a woman being pleasured. Yeah. And then he's like, do you know how I know I'm- he's going down on her? Because I don't hear him. Because I don't hear him. And then it like cuts, and then it cuts to his perspective. He's like, I've never done this before. <laughs> I don't know. I love the contrast. The head hopping. I think it's so good because like I never got sick of either of them. And I think I would have gotten really sick of both of them if I had to spend longer in either of them. Like the head hopping is actually quite, it also keeps the pace quite um, propellant. Yeah, I, I think, I think so too. I I found that scene to be very sexy because it has that perfect twinkle of like dramatic irony and is still like very sensual. It goes very slow. I really love that first scene. And I also love the scene you talked about. Yeah, it's like it's surprisingly sweet. Like she's trying to like take care of him. He's 
just really wants to be inside her in any way that he can. Yeah, and then even like the the scene where he takes her virginity and he's trying to go very slow and he's trying to be very tender and she's very glad. Okay, purity culture, it's trigger warning, but she feels glad that she's sharing this thing with someone that she hasn't shared with anyone else. She's glad she's sharing it with him. Her gift. I wish it wasn't contextualized that way. There is something in like sharing a first experience with somebody. Sure. It's not like a gift, Mm. but I think we have a hard time like verbalizing it because we have so much gunk hanging around the word virginity like gift language is like so powerful even if we don't necessarily feel that way about it when we use those words we feel that way about it and so i i really want to give this book the benefit of the doubt because i do like that remo's like uh you're worth way more than the one time you have sex for the first time. He's too into her virginity for me to believe it. Anyways, off to extort your whole family based on the one <laughs> based time. Based on the one time we had sex, sex and I'm for- super glad that I got to come balls deep inside of you and mark you, so. It made it, like, very upsetting that he, like, took the sheets off the bed to, like, put them in the hall so that they could be FedExed. Yeah, FedExed. Very upsetting. But then there was also something about him, like, wanting to stick around afterwards. No, he, like, wanted to cuddle. He wanted to be present. I don't think he was willing to admit to himself that he wanted to cuddle. There's actually a very sweet little, like, aside where she's like, I like I don't know if it's in that scene, but she's like, when's the last time that you cuddled? And he's like, I haven't cuddled since, like, Adamo was an infant, is what he says. Because, like, he was responsible for raising his two younger brothers. I can't believe you think he's a bad person. (laughs) I do. I I think you can contain multitudes. And on the scale of things, that guy's going to hell. Like, hell I don't believe in. But, like, he's a bad person. If there is a hell, he's going there. He's going there. There's also the whole, like, MMA element, which... What am I like? I don't believe in guilty pleasures. I feel so guilty about the pleasure I take in viewing fighting sports. I can't get into it. Uh, I think I have, I think like people being punched in the face for realsies because like I love it in anime for real, but I for reals I can't take it. Like everything about stuff hitting people's faces is just like really difficult for me. It's arresting. He's also a very mean, bad MMA fighter. He's not like that fun guy from Liverpool. Womancer or no man's. Are you ready? This is <laughs> Yeah. You go first. <laughs> God forgive me. This is a womance. Mm-hmm. I could not put it down. I think Remo and Serafina are two super rich characters who go through a lot of growth over the course of the novel in spite of the incredible visceral violence in like almost surreal setting, which I think comes from this being written by a British person. At one point, someone says, won't you put on shoes? We would never say that in America. Absolutely not. No one says that in Chicago. Get out of here. Yeah. So there's like this kind of like surrealist quality that if anyone comes at me and is like, hey, I can't believe you would like a book like that. I'll be like, oh, it was like this weird surrealist thing. (laughs) I was like really not expecting to enjoy it after that first act. I had to intellectualize a lot. Ultimately, like what carried me through the rest of the book 
wasn't me rationalizing it. It was me just reading for entertainment and pleasure. And to that end, this book really delivered and surprised me. That's good. It's a no man's for me Mm -hmm. with a weird asterisk. Oh, come on. No, no, because here's the thing. I did not. I, I never got to a place where, like, I felt good about Serafina being with this person. And so, like, if the AGA doesn't work, like, it, it can't be a romance for me. But I did go ahead and get the second book <laughs> because I was curious enough about Nico and Kiara and their story. So, like, clearly something was working in this series for me. I just don't think it was this one. Nothing proves that there is absolutely zero science, only animal sniff-in-the-air instinct behind woe versus no than this verdict. But I have to say, I think this is the way it has to be because romance is so personal and so id and ego-driven. And like, if you get what you want out of a book, however you feel about it in the postmortem, is your woe or your no. Yeah, it's what you're left with. Dude, I get why this is such a thing. Yeah, I mean, it's like a whole dark corner that is surprisingly plush and surprisingly deep. Yet again, like I catch myself looking like down my nose at corners of the genre that I just haven't explored for myself. And I I got here and I was immediately like, this is actually Shakespearean, not just in the sense that it like has this irony and it has this family drama and this it's like matters of kings and like kingdoms and it's super violent and it's super sexual but I was thinking like you know maybe like at its base level like Shakespeare's plays are super affecting prose that contain a lot of titillating stuff and in that way this book is that, but it's also like, it feels closer, it feels closer to Flesh and the Devil than like any other contemporary book we've read. And I don't think it's just the violence and I don't think it's just the like mm-hmm. bad man. Like, I think there is something really like, I think there's something like dripping and sinewy in this writing, like a violin string. Mm-hmm. It's just, there's something about it that like, was very arresting to me about this book mm-hmm. specifically. I can't really speak about like dark mafia romance at large yet, but there's something about this text specifically that I feel did, shrouds itself in darkness so it can whisper truths in your ear. <laughs> I know why it didn't do that for me. It was the overextended angel metaphor oh come on no man i totally forgot about that she has a very ugly engagement ring now she has a hideous engagement ring she has a hideous tattoo he has this whole thing about her like falling to earth and like setting her free it's like every which way this metaphor is it's like it's like 360 view of this metaphor and i'm like it it can't work that way it's like that that's not my weirdest part, my the age is the weirdest part, but like the thing that actually stopped me from it being a woe was this overextended metaphor. I could every time he was like, Angel, I was like, ah! Stop it. 
Stop it. It's like, it's like it, even if it had been baby girl, I think it would have been easier for me. No, um, take that back. I take it back. But like, I was like, I, yeah, I was pretty done with Angel by the end. And like that, like it took the enjoyment out of it for me. The metaphor was too uh, overburdened. And so like this whispering in the dark, that was very evocative. Because I will think about this book. I mean, I thought about it enough to get the next one because I liked Nico and Kiriara enough to be like, what's, what's your deal, vegetarian weirdo who lives in the manse? I think it turns out the lights so it can whisper to you. And it was whispering Angel to me, and I was like, get fucking away, stop! Get away. <laughs> it did not. Uh, it's a, yeah, wow, a split decision. Will we hold it against one another? You'll have to tune in next week. <laughs> Is this the end? <laughs> Does it die here in Vegas? Did you hear, uh, have you been keeping up with The Last of Us? Yes. So when Joel called Ellie baby girl, I was like, here it is. We've resolved the issue. Because everyone's so horny for Pedro Pascal. I was like, see, this is the context in which, like, that he's he's being a parent. He is letting her know that she can be a child. Mm-hmm. He's calling her baby girl. Nope, everyone was horny for it. Everyone got horned up over it because it's just taboo now. Speaking of dark romance, <sighs> it's just taboo. And here's the thing. That stuff icks me out more than this stuff. More than this book. It made me so sad, too, because, like, narratively speaking, it was such a beautiful little arc God, where it's like yeah. he hadn't said it since his daughter died in his arms, where literally the last thing he says to her is baby girl. And then here, like, Ellie comes running out covered in blood and, like, screaming, and he's like, I've got you, baby girl. And it's the first time he said it in 20 years, and it's, like, in the context of being dad. And it's also the first time Ellie has gotten to be taken care of you know and she really wants mm-hmm. to be taken care of <laughs> i cried of i was course. like it was very moving also the correct context for baby girl if there ever was one it's that but no people have he, people have isolated the audio <laughs> fucking perverts you're a pervert you should be in jail <laughs> Yeah, honestly, Pedro Pascal in that instance, I would also say Bernie Mac from the Bernie Mac show when he was literally <laughs> referring to a five-year-old child. <laughs> I was not expecting Bernie Mac to come into this. <laughs> I just need some time to recover. I don't even remember the character, the child's name. And it was a baby girl child. The man getting gutted slowly like a fish in this book shocked me less than you bringing up Bernie Mac in these are last moments of this episode oh my god loosen your stays but never your principles baby girl baby girl gorgeous Wooly guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonsack. They're the best. 
You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womanspodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Romance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.